Welcome to Unpacking Impact, a podcast that explores how rapid digital transformation shapes economics, culture, jobs, policy, and of course, you. Each episode, we speak with thought leaders that are playing and changing the game at the highest levels. Dr. Chris Howard is COO of ASU Enterprise, overseeing its $5 billion budget and nearly 200,000 students. A Rhodes Scholar and an Air Force Academy graduate, Dr. Howard was a helicopter pilot and intelligence officer and was awarded a Bronze Star in Afghanistan. We discuss what digital transformation means for access to education and the next generation of students. I'm Naveen Tukaram. I'm Andrew Schwartz. Let's begin. Dr. Howard, welcome to the podcast. Why don't we start from the beginning of the beginning? I'm not sure if a lot of people know this about you, but you're a graduate of the Air Force Academy and, which I think is more impressive some, in some ways, you were starting running back on the football team when Air Force won the Liberty Bowl against none other than Ohio State. Yes. Tell me about that experience and what drove you to success at such an early age? Yeah, you, there's, there's a couple of things conflated in there, Naveen, and I'm happy to unpack. It's a great question. So athletics in general is a great American treasure because it's been a ticket for so many people for ascendancy and success. The military has also been that. And I kind of got a double dose. All my uncles played sports. Uh, they weren't as good as me and my brother who played at Baylor, played football there. But it was always about, you know, here's an opportunity to do your best and excel. And as an African-American, Naveen, you know, nobody cares what color you are, if you can run that rock or you can you can make that touchdown or whatever. And then also America loves a David and Goliath story. Well, I will say that at Harvard Business School, we played one intramural game, which you took over, I recall. <laughs> and we went for the two-point conversion on the last play. We didn't get it, but I was seeing some of that Air Force running back skills, even as late as your Harvard Business School time. <laughs> and after the Air Force, you were a Rhodes Scholar. I want to skip that, even though that's very interesting. I want to skip to your military service because you were a pilot, an intelligence officer, and you actually won a Bronze Star in Afghanistan. First of all, thanks for your service. Appreciate it. Thank you. Can you tell us a little about that experience and how that's influenced your, your spirit of service as you've moved from the military towards higher education? Yeah. Ironically, I was going to, when we left business school, I was thinking seriously about running for office. I was going to go back to Texas and maybe run for one of the one of the seats. And that was fun to kind of explore. I had an exploratory committee with a, a road scholar a couple of years ahead of me. I was going to be maybe be my chair of that. And it was really kind of pulling the pieces together to run for office and make a serious run for the United States Congress. Because I, I always wanted to serve. I wanted to lead. I want to serve and I want to grow. And then I got called up, as you know, the very I got called at the beginning of our time at Harvard Business School and then stood down. And then I got called up right when we started taking finals, I got called up. At that point, I remember talking to my dad and he was like, my, who passed away in 2019. He's like, son, it's all about service, right? And so if you're going to serve, you go back, get called up and serve in the military. You serve in Congress. It's all about service. And so when I went downrange, I was headed to Iraq as a human intelligence officer, strategic debriefer. They, I was in D.C. They changed my orders. I went to Afghanistan. I arrived September 11th, 2003. So two years to the date of 9-11 and a blacked out C-130 coming in from Kyrgyzstan. I was in civilian clothes with a bunch of Rangers coming in, landed. And I, what I did was I ran human intelligence overt collection. So non-clandestine, non-covert. And I did it for then General Austin, who now is Secretary Austin. 
And so, you know, I can't go into all the details of what I did because it was classified mission. But I used to tell my sons all the time, my job was to tell the good guys where the bad guys were so we could annihilate them. And so worked a lot all over the country, was based in Bagram Air Base, uh, Naveen, but was in Kabul all the time, Mazari Sharif, Herat, Jalalabad, Asadabad, uh, Kanduz, Skardez, Kandahar. I was outside the wire all the time for the, the time I was there, and I was honored to serve. And my dad also received the Bronze Star for his service in Vietnam. Wow. So I was very proud to see those next to each other. My mom and dad, my mom has them next to each other in her house. It's pretty powerful. Wow. How did that time in the military influence what you're doing at ASU? I'd love to make a bridge between those two things because you've always been someone that has an eye towards service, as you mentioned. Yes. Maybe you could give folks um, a sense of the scale of the university. Sure. Because folks might be wondering, why are we talking to the CEO of ASU? But what you guys are doing and the scale you're doing it is quite impactful, especially as it relates to one of the themes of our podcast, which is digital transformation. Yes. So why don't we start there? Yes, I'll start with our North Star as a university, which is our charter which Michael Crow started working on about 20 years ago and the whole community bought into it, which is we're going to judge ourselves by the outcomes of whom we include as opposed to whom we exclude. So we're a truly inclusive institution and we figure we have to, in order to be inclusive and operate at scale, you have to have technology. So we are big in the digital transformation. We're the, so the enterprise uh, technology piece reports to me, it's about $140 million operating budget, about 800 people. And we're the largest customer for higher education for like Salesforce, for Amazon Web Services, and many of the big players. So we're around the table with the with those companies all the time, Naveen. We play with Google, with Amazon, with Meta, so forth and so on. And in our own technology, dev ops stuff that we do on our own. But back to your other point about scale, why talk to ASU? So we're the largest R1, D1 university by enrollment. So we have 80,000 students on our campuses, Tempe, Mesa, Lake Havasu downtown Phoenix, LA, DC, and a little bit in London. We have another 90,000 students online. There's 170,000 students all in. Our faculty, 5,700 faculty, 27,000 employees, they're not just online faculty, they teach both. So we really do have our best faculty teaching across the board. We have 31,000 students in our engineering school, including 6,000 online, the largest engineering school in the country, largest design and artist school in the country as well. And the largest business school, 21,000 business school students. So we're, you know, we're really big. In addition, we have another 310,000 students that are upskilling on our learning enterprise that are that are that are certificate-seeking learners, but not students. And then finally, we have about 25 million people that are touching our technology. If you go online and, and you have a niece or nephew that wants to learn about biology and want to ask a biology professor, they can go online and, and do that with us. So we have about 25 million of those interactions. So we're, we're and we're the largest destination for international students at a, for a public university. We have six thousand five hundred Indian students in the in the in the Indian ambassadors of the U.S. was here just yesterday. So we're we're very much operating at scale and using lots of technology to get there. It sure sounds like it. So I'm just going to review that for our audience a little bit. It sounds like almost two hundred thousand students, yeah. both on and off campus. Interestingly enough, more online than on campus, but enrolled at the university. Yes. So it's not some secondary certificate. Then you have 300,000 additional folks that are taking some sort of formal program at the university. Maybe not like it, maybe they're getting a certificate, yep. not a formal degree, yep. but that's, that's up to half a million 
folks, and then 25 million that are enjoying some of your content in some way. Well, those have 11 charter schools and about 40,000 students do K through 12 education through our thing called Prep Digital. We have an agreement with our classmate, Sal Khan. We do some of the AP courses for Khan Academy as well. So that's a whole nother realm. So we're just like touching the whole value chain of human capital development, leveraging technology. Can you give me an example of how you are leveraging that technology? Because I imagine that it's used in different ways for different segments of the student population. Yes. Let me give you two. I just presented to the Butler University, Fine University in Indianapolis, about 5,000 students. I just spoke to their board of trustees, the behest of their president. And they were, before I got up and spoke, they were talking about if we had a technology that could help a student understand what they were interested in, so they could help choose their major, that we could use artificial intelligence and other algorithms to do that, it'd be very good. And I go, I got up after he spoke and I said, yeah, there's, a, there's an app for that. We do that. It's called Me3. We developed it in-house in an enterprise technology shop. And what we do there, and I mean, you can go online, we can send you a link to it. It's a series of photos you choose between which one you're most interested in. And it helps you understand like your interests. Are you a creative type? Are you a sales type? Are you an engineering type? And we validated that with some of the top behavioral scientists and psychologists in the world. And it works. I mean, it, the efficacy is very, very high. So that's, that's validating. That's working. And your listeners could play around with it if they want to. Other side of this, this is where we start developing stuff because we know there's a need, but we, we can't get it off the shelf. But we can help develop it. We have something called Pocket using blockchain technology to help you have a digital wallet. A lot of digital wallets out there for money, but it's a digital wallet for your degrees and your credentials and your experiences. All in blockchain. So, you know, it's a ledger. It's a universal ledger. So once it's there, it's there. So a guy named uh, Timothy Summers, a Carnegie Mellon graduate, really fine entrepreneur in his own right, is developing that inside of ASU. And we're at the beta stage. We're getting some money from significant foundations to do this. I think, I think Gates is involved in this with us. But we're creating this starting with our own students. We're so big, we can do things internally and scale them ourselves. It's like, okay, you've taken this degree, you've got this certificate, you did this internship, and it's just an app. You open up and it validates and it populates automatically through blockchain. And so we're working with the Air Force on this right now. They're kind of interested, their training training command, because everybody wants some credential that can, because it enables, especially the least, think about technology, and I'm sure we'll get to this. It, it, it can help the least amongst us. You know, people that can't always call back and pay for the transcript. So it makes it, it puts it literally on your phone. Sure. You can dial up anytime. So anyway, that that's called pocket. And that's, we're probably about 60% there. Maybe we'll come back in your show later on and we can do a demo, but that's a third, just me three and pocket are two examples of how we're leveraging technology. I probably could do 50 more, but I won't because it's your sure. <laughs> it sounds like a lot of different interesting projects that you guys are, that are in various stages of development or deployment. Well, I was just thinking, you know, you said you have a $140 million budget just for the enterprise technology stuff. Is that correct? Yeah. And the overall budget for the us as a public enterprise, which includes the university and the enterprise units that report in, which I, you know, kind of oversee all this stuff and coordinate this stuff, about $5 billion. And about five, only about $500 million comes from the state. Wow. So we're very, very entrepreneurial, man. We're very scrappy. We got to get it done. <laughs> well, speaking of entrepreneurial... Someone else has been on this podcast, Peter Thiel, the Silicon Valley billionaire who maybe is not a household name, but it's pretty well known. He's argued that the usefulness for higher education is waning or maybe even not relevant going forward for this economy, which I'm sure you're you're aware of. How would you respond to that? You know, should a high school student today still be aspiring to go to a top university or should they just be learning how to code? Yeah. 
I, I, I think that there is a role for universities in the knowledge economy of the 21st century. 75% of the jobs, I think, according to McKinsey, out there need some sort of skill beyond high school. Now, what is that? Is that a community college associate degree? Is that a four-year degree? Is that a doctorate? Is that a certificate? Is it time in the military where you get certification along the way? It's something along those lines. And universities, which do a great job, either big ones like this one, I'm a COO, or small ones like Hampton Sydney, where you served on the board with me when I was president, understanding yourself, understanding the world around you and your role in the world, that's going to be critically important. Ability to communicate either with chat GPT or without it. <laughs> discernment, skills of discernment. I mean, I watch your career. I mean, half the things you do is just like discerning. It's, it's just discernment. And higher education can do that. And if you're Peter Till, you're running a big technology company, or if you're, you know, Chris Young, our classmate is number, what, number five or six at Microsoft, He's using those skills from Princeton. He's using those skills from Harvard Business School to make big decisions. Now, everybody in the organization that works there, some of them might just be kick butt coders. That's fine. So I think we need a spectrum of people with, with credentials and degrees beyond high school. We know that to be true. But to say that, you know, universities where we know that in the long run, about a million dollars net to your bottom line lifetime wise because of going to university, the sense of agency that you get you gain by getting an education what it means for our democracy to know that when people are denying an election and you know that Madisonian principles and Jeffersonian principles of democracy and you've read about those and been informed by those, that's some serious stuff, man. And then that, I mean, I don't get nothing against somebody that can code or that's really good with Excel spreadsheet. You need to understand like some philosophy, some history, some science, because otherwise our society will, will our democratic republic will implode. I agree. I would just say that at what price? Because the individual is the one that has to pay for this, right? So for example, how much does it cost to go to ASU right now? Uh, about 13000 13000 Okay, not bad. But but nobody pays that. I mean, that's the thing about oh. it. It has to be clear. Okay. You know, so so there, it's, it's almost as crazy as like healthcare, you know? How much is your health? <laughs> I don't know. It goes through insurance. So it depends on how much. It's all means tested, right? It's actually very democratic, right? So- for us, we might have, so we're 30% Pell eligible, 40% first generation, right? And if you're making less than $50,000 a year, something along those lines, you're not, you're not paying anything. But as you, the more you can pay, you typically will pay more. But those that are least amongst us in terms of what their, their ability to pay, their scholarship or their financial aid is, is, is significant. So with us, I know that we have tens of thousands of students that are subsidized through other sources to be able to get their education. I think that understanding the cost of your education, the debt you take on is a, is a serious consideration. You should make informed decisions about your degree and job opportunities. Universities can teach skills as well as getting degrees as well. But uh, it is not, not everybody's going to school and paying $200,000. And a lot of people going to your alma mater or Harvard and paying a couple hundred, they can afford to pay it and they would even pay more. So it's a little bit of, it's a little jumbled. Good. Well, it's great to know that ASU is affordable for a lot of yes. folks, especially if you if the data point that you said is accurate, which is it's a million dollar of return over some period of time. So if you're paying nothing and you're getting a million dollars over some period of time, my guess is that ROI is pretty attractive. Very much so. As long as we're on, we were on the topic, we started on this topic via Peter Thiel. How is AI, which is not which is such a umbrella yep. term now, but I'll keep the question okay. broad. 
how is AI impacting education going forward? Because obviously the ability to memorize stuff, which was very important when we were going to school, is totally irrelevant, right? The ability to research stuff, which was important when we were going to school, which I hated, by the way, is irrelevant because you can get all that. You could, before chat GPT, before AI, you had access to that on your phone instantaneously. I agree with you that judgment and discernment are part of the skill set that you gain from getting higher education. What is the impact of AI and what is the ultimate role of the student in their education if they're not doing the research, if they're not memorizing stuff? Obviously, you're educating them to have that judgment that you identified before. Just talk us through that. Yeah, it, it, it's a tool and it's evolving. I'm, I, I'm very honest to say that this is this is new, and we need to think about where it might fit in. I think the jury, the corny phrases of the jury is still out, and we're figuring out how it fits. But a couple things to think about: generative AI is pretty cool. So that's just a creepy, cool thing that's happening. Back to my original thesis that it is a tool and it is early. So you're an engineer. I have a bachelor of science degree because of the Air Force Academy, everybody gets a bachelor of science. At one point in your engineering classes, you had to derive an equation. You had to go through with a pen and piece of paper and you figured out, you actually figured out why that equation works in the physical world, right? But you never went back and use it that way again. You just had to understand the background of how it worked, right? Same way, it's like Excel. I mean, you know, the Excel warriors that come through through business schools. You know, my son, Joshua, you know, is a JP Morgan. He's never touched the mouse. And he's putting all these formulas in there. And does he, he, he understands the formulas, but he would never go back and even use a calculator or a piece of paper or pencil to do that. But it's a great tool, but he understands enough of the background to do a discounted cash flow or a net present value or other things, right? To have it help him. Sure. I think that ChatGPT will do something along that with writing for us. So your ability to leverage ChatGPT to do to, to do better work and be more productive will be a skill that's different than your ability to answer a question with like original knowledge or something like that. So and, and we might test people the old-fashioned way, which is like here, you and I are having a conversation. Maybe more tests are going to be oral exams. Maybe there'll be exams that say, like you remember, we, we I know at, I know at Air Force we had open book tests. They closed book tests and open book tests. They're just they, they're testing different things. And I think the chat GPT is going to find some float switch, some balance in between those things. Naveen, I don't, I don't know what it is yet, but I think we're working through it. And I'm kind of wondering, is testing even relevant anymore? And this is come, something coming from mm -hmm. someone who was pretty damn good at tests back in the day, as you know, but I'm rethinking that. Yes. What are we testing students for, right? Because ultimately, where is the value or if we just use dollar value as one metric, right? Because as you mentioned, people come to university to get a return on their investment, whether whether one likes it or not. What skills are we testing them for? Because the creation of value is someone's got to be creative, someone's got to be entrepreneurial, all those things, right? Checking a box, running Excel spreadsheets, a lot of that stuff is going to yeah. be outsourced and already is outsourced to India and then maybe outsourced locally yeah. to some software program and is... So what are, what are we testing them for and, and what skills should they leave the university with? Yeah, yeah, I, I think that is a work in progress. So it's well, mm -hmm. but I think there's an understanding that high stakes singular tests are not necessarily the best predictive measure of, of being successful going in the future and right. how useful is it. You think about, you know, you and I have known each other for a long time. 
And we've gone through a lot of things as board members, as advisory board members, as leaders in finance and education and business and so forth and so on. It was more like project-based where you might do some independent work where you're going to come together, you're going to check it, I'm going to check it, we're going to work together. And so project-based education, project-based work is probably much more the work of the day than is a high stakes test. So right. I, I don't think we've crossed that bridge yet. I'm not saying there's not a place for it. There's, by the way, some tests are, we do a lot of work with ETS here as well. Some tests are better than other tests, right? That's another HBS guy as well. Amit is, a, is an HBS guy. And they're thinking about this stuff as well at ETS to their credit. But as an evaluative tool of what you're going to be doing in the future, again, I, I know you're chuckling. I see you chuckling like, Nobody, nobody makes you go in a room by yourself and take a test to like solve a big problem. In fact, if you're doing that, you're very wrong. <laughs> yeah. So I'm wondering why, even if, again, back to the, over, uh, one of the themes, which is, is the overall system of higher education just unnecessary these days, or maybe less necessary. It's certainly less necessary than it was in the past in terms of getting a job, right? Like well, it's I, would not- say, I, I would say this, I would say that if you take a 19th century Fordism type school and plunk that in the 21st century, that's problematic. So right. if schools can evolve to do yep. things to be more relevant that would feel that, that have coding boot camps that have other mechanisms in them. You got to get the price point right too. To be get me, don't get me wrong. Yes, I think there's there is a role for that in uh, civil society going forward, whether it be business, government, etc. Well, speaking of civil society, is almost a perfect segue. I'm sure you're familiar with cancel culture as a trend, which seems to be more prevalent on university campuses than really anywhere else. That's just me anecdotally. It's not a data-driven comment, but what's your view of this trend and what, if anything, should be done about it? Maybe you can sort of define it as you see it and then dissect how you might interact with it going forward. So the idea of cancel culture it lends itself to an economist's mind, Naveen, because on the one hand, but on the other hand. <laughs> sure. So I'll speak as an academician. I'll speak as a leader in higher education and not as a, not the set view of ASU. I'm not I'm not doing that, but I'm just saying Understood. If, if leader. So your, in higher your personal opinion. With my your personal experience. opinion is that we've got to err on the side of more openness and more candor and more more freedom of expression. Is it absolute? No, you can have hate speech. You can do things that go beyond a certain pale, but you got to, you got to get close to that line. And if you don't do an academy, you don't do it anywhere. And so I think the president of Wesley and president Roth says, you don't need necessarily safe spaces, but you need brave spaces and brave spaces get really uncomfortable and prickly. And, 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 and serving on the board of Harvard, uh, board of overseers, we have these conversations, even at the board level, because you can, you can end up stifling voices that, you have no reason in, in 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 the law of unintentional consequences where you're you're stifling what you're trying to bring to the table, which is radical candor and openness and, and and expression. So cancel culture speaks against that. So things that speak against that I find extraordinarily problematic. I do, on the other hand, understand that people can feel they can bring a certain trauma to a space and place, and things can happen that can trigger in a way that's personal and emotive, that's real, that we have to grapple with. Having said mm-hmm. all that, I still think we got to get really close to that line because as a society, especially in higher education, you don't do it here. If, if freedom of expression, don't, if they don't flow here, where would they flow? We, we So the media enterprise reports through me to Michael 
pro the president, a woman named Mia Paris has a fine job. She did an event called The Big Truth on Monday here at our Walter Conkright School of Journalism and Mass Communications. And it's going to be, it had Major Garrett from CBS, who had been at, sure. been at CNN, I believe, and very fine journalist. Yep. And uh, sure. Frank Luntz, the Republican pollster, who was really, really good. We also had Bill Gates, not that Bill Gates, but the Bill Gates who does the county uh, election stuff here for Maricopa County, which is the fastest growing one of the largest counties and most important counties in, in the country, and the gentleman from Georgia who dealt with all the election things there. These are two very prominent Republicans. And then we had in the front row like 20 people that were either election deniers or questioned the election outcome and then a bunch of other people. And it's going to come out as a one-hour show. They're going to have several campuses. But it was neat to see in that room many views that I did not agree with. Mm-hmm. But we were all in the room and we we're all talking. And they had another gentleman who had been in the Bush administration and I think in the Obama administration who dealt with elections. I mean, like there were things said in that room, like I said, that I was like, ah, this is not kosher with me. But I'm so right. happy it was said. And then we predicted we're going to put it in a in a bundle so that society can consume it as well. It's called the big truth as opposed to the big lie. It was fascinating. And so that's an example of, I think, of us creating a space as a commons to get this communication out and this flow out. And in 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 cancel culture would have would have not allowed for some of those people to even have a voice, which it was good. Right. Yeah. That's good you guys are are doing that. I don't have any specific view on that particular topic relative to that's a good one or a bad one to have to have out there. But in terms of just the brave space that you said, a lot of people to say, otherwise, they're just going to say it behind closed doors. They're going to do it without any, any way for their view to be challenged. And they're sort of in that internet rabbit hole, right? And they, you go deeper and deeper. I'm not speaking directly to this particular issue, but any issue. And speaking of the internet rabbit hole, it seems to me that the Silicon Valley elites, which I've spent some time in Silicon Valley, so I have, I have some, obviously some ties to that that world, have really profited from, obviously, the tremendous amount of value creation for social media platforms and other platforms that have been very divisive and created these echo chambers, right? And created things like the big lie, as far as we can tell. What's your take on that? How much responsibility should these platforms have in creating what can only be described as quite a divisive culture in our country right now? Yeah, and it's informed by deep pockets and personal gain. It's not all about the greater good, you know. Right. It's not. It's not about. It's not Rousseau's concept of the social good and the greater good always. Although there were fine people in Silicon Valley, so I would say this. Sure. I would def- define. Silicon Valley's role and the big companies, tech companies' role and how we think about speech and regu- regulating speech, et cetera, et cetera, is a film, not a snapshot. And so it has gone, it's gone over, it's been playing over time. So there was a point where social media, the Facebook was, it was a novelty. It it, it was like, you know, watching cats playing the piano on, on YouTube. It just, it just didn't mean a whole lot. But now, as it continues to grow on, as the film keeps going on, obviously we cannot deny the. If it's not monopolistic, it's 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 just tremendous influence in terms of people in their own person, how we mm-hmm. deal as a society with uh, and deal with issues, how we, our international relations. My old political science degree days is non-state players, non-governmental players, and and they're not even like this big 
Fortune 1000 firms because their reach, I mean, if you make coasters and you make a lot of them, make a lot of money, that's one thing. But if you make information or, or you disseminate, that's just it's a different role. So I think that there's becoming a consensus amongst the leaders in Silicon Valley and in Washington. That's why your, your program is so important to close that chasm is that probably it's some combination of both, right? I hate to give a wishy-washy answer. I'm not going to count. I know a lot of people at Meta and, and, and Google and they've been with Apple, been on these campuses and stuff. They're not, they need to do more, more than they did 10 years ago, more than they did five years ago, but they can't do it all. And our policymakers, whether it be actual Congress people and, and, and the executive branch, or whether it be think tanks, like I know you're associated with CSIS and whatever that have to, they're going to have to step up, but it's, it's a continuation. And then there's people that like sit on like tech people that are sitting on like Reed sitting on one of the presidential, not the defense advisory board, but one of those defense science advisory boards, right? So there's a guy like Reed Hoffman is, and you're kind of in the same boat, Naveen, you're in all these worlds simultaneously. I think it's some variation on theme of that. I, I, I wish I would give you a more uh, concrete answer, but I know that it's dynamic. Yeah. And, well, and, I, and it, it takes more than just one or the other, but go ahead, Naveen. Right. Um, yeah, all those boards are great. At the end of the day, however, these companies report to shareholder value. Yes, they do. And they are incentivized to do what they want to do in order to maximize the share price, which maximizes executive comp, right? So, and obviously these are very large organizations. So one or two or a hundred people, uh, I wouldn't say a hundred people, but a few people can't move the needle unless they're at the very, very top. And the very, very top are the most incentivized by shareholder value. So it's really hard to see when you follow the money, how things are going to change meaningfully in any reasonable period of time. I, I, I certainly hope I'm vastly wrong on that, but we'll see because it seems like things are not trending in the right or a neutral direction. It just, it seems like things your, continue the, the to spiral. The political philosopher and your fellow Princetonian and my fellow Rhodes Scholar, George Will, conservative columnist, he says, quite often when you want government to act, you want it to act as a sharp scalpel, but really quite often it's a rusty nail. So my concern is, and I think you play a role in this in terms of making it better is, you know, there are smart members of Congress. Sure. But their ability to enact at a technical level, a policy that doesn't deliver a set of unintended consequences is sometimes not as bad, but can be competing with the perverse incentives that are created by our capitalist system. Absolutely. Behavior. So there's like Definitely. this tension there, Naveen, that we're trying to battle. And again, you're right. I mean, you know, I'm on a publicly traded board. You've been on boards. Comp is comp and it is tied to metric and it is tied to that stock price and so forth and so on. Now, you have some things around ESG and some other things that are weighing at that value, triple bottom line, stuff like that. But right. That's, that's the work of the work, as Ronald Heifus would say. That's that's adaptive work where competing values are indeed competing. So we have to kind of sort that out. So keep pushing the rock up the hill, Naveen, maybe, and hope you don't get run over by it. So good luck. Good luck yeah, to I'm you. Not, I'm not sure I'm taking on that. I'm not taking on any of that role or would pretend to. Well, on that note, let me end on what is hopefully a, a hopeful note, which is simply, what gives you hope for the future? Why do you believe that what you're doing at ASU, specifically around digital transformation is going to create a better world? So I'll give you two examples. So we have something called Dreamscape Learn. It started by a guy named Walter Parks. Walter Parks, you remember the movie War Games years ago? He did that movie. He did, he, helped, he produced Men in Black. He produced Gladiator. 
one of Steven Spielberg's best friends. He helps him form DreamWorks. He's a brilliant storyteller, filmmaker, et cetera. So was his wife. And years ago, he and Steven Spielberg came up with this technology called the Alien Zoo. And it's a VR technology where you go into an alien planet and you learn about the planet. Well, Michael Kroll saw this a couple of years ago and fell in love with it right before COVID and said, this is the future. This is what we call realm four learning, which is explored, learning through exploration. Like going back to your idea about is a, is a university relevant, degree relevant now in 21st century, mm -hmm. well, so you start using some of these 21st century tools, whether it be ChatGPT or virtual reality. So what we did was, so we, we took this alien zoo and we worked together with, um, to license this technology and put some of our own funds into it. And we have put, by the end of this year, we would have put 9,000 students, Naveen, 9,000 through Biology 100, 181, 182. Um, by doing their lab, you know, the ubiquitous lab, instead of doing it in the laboratory, they do it in, a, in another world. Hmm, interesting. In an alien zoo. Come, over, come on down and you do it. I'll, I'll take you through DSL. You should Dreamscape Learn. And so you put the goggles on and you explore and it's all structured with our biology professors and it's, it's literally is the lab and we have seen up to 30 percent improvement in grade performance for the lab compared to the control group that did the regular labs oh wow and that's the, uh, that's a pretty cool use of technology yeah and, and, and so and in terms of like why am i hopeful it's the students of color and our students that are coming from underserved communities that were not as academic prepared as our other honor students that had the greatest gain i don't care where you're coming from You've never been to an alien zoo. The other side with AI, we have is adaptive learning. So here's the idea. We have something called the Max Accelerator. It's about math, computer science, and statistics. So we think that if you can get people literate in those subjects, you can get them literate in STEM, they can have a 21st century great, great life, great way, right, Naveen? But to do that at scale, you can't all sit in a classroom at Exeter or Andover or Eaton or whatever, one-on-one -on -one tutorials to learn math the old-fashioned way or any great public school or whatever, private school, doesn't matter. But if you can take asynchronous adaptive learning tools, we had a company called Cogbooks, which now has a relationship with Cambridge University Press, which is now Cambridge Media. We've come together and we're developing through Ed Plus, which is one of our te technology 600 education designers we have on our campus as part of us as a public enterprise. And we are developing a way that, Naveen, you can sit down and start learning math and work your way up to algebra and calculus and statistics, asynchronous, adaptive learning. So you try a problem, you do it wrong, it takes you this way, you do it wrong this way, it takes you this way, you get that, it brings you back this way, it brings you back, it brings, we're going to do that in biology as well. So at scale, adaptive technology. And then and the last thing I was going to wrap, on top of all that, we just got $10 million from YouTube or something called YouTube College, where we're teaching people about college at scale. It's called Crash Course through the Green Brothers to get you comfortable with what a FAFSA is, what a credit hour is, everything. We're offering courses you can take through YouTube and get college credit, and they go to college. So those three things really allow the common man or woman or person access to upskilling, training, degrees, et cetera, regardless of what their mom and dad's bank account looks like and what zip code they grew up in. So that's what makes me excited. Well, that's, that's fascinating because I think one of the definitions of technology is something that makes a process operate at scale or more efficiently. In this case, efficiently is cutting out costs, cutting out tuition, right? Including the distance of travel. 
and certainly at scale. That's fairly obvious in the in the examples you gave. Well, Dr. Howard, thanks for everything you do for not only leadership for half a million learners at ASU, but the ongoing derivative ramifications of that work. Great to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much, Levine. Thank you for what you're doing, making a difference in bridging the gap between policymakers and technologists and business folks and venture capitalists and doing it with great style, my friend. I'm honored to be on your podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog. Music.